Good evening. We live in an age of consensus politics. No, we really do. You see, Brexit divided everybody. And in the end, the Conservative Party, having been for EU membership, finally were pushed into being against it. And we kind of thought, or well, maybe now, the Labour and Conservative parties are really different. Truth is, we've almost gone back to where we were before the Brexit debate. They're very, very similar. So when you get the Labour Party, the Liberal Democrats, the SNP and everybody else saying we've got to have a windfall tax, these oil and gas companies have made a whole load of money in the last 18 months or so, um, you know that the Conservatives will follow pretty shortly after a debate. And of course, they'll say we're a low tax party, really. But in these extreme circumstances, it's what we've got to do. And over the course of the weekend, more and more. Well, there are divisions, yes, but there are more and more conservative voices arguing that a windfall tax is what needs to be done. I said sitting here last Thursday, I thought that was a rotten idea. I thought what they should do is get the oil and gas companies into number 10, beer and sandwiches like the old days, and say to them, look, we will put a windfall tax on you unless you reinvest those profits in new onshore and offshore development. Interestingly, Kwasi Kwarteng said much the same thing 24 hours after I'd said it. So there is a debate, there is a row going on over windfall taxes within the Conservative Party. It seems to me the mood music is moving towards that windfall tax happening. I still don't really think it's going to work. I don't think it's going to make much different difference. Um, but it's also just a very odd thing for a party that calls itself Conservative, that is now overseeing the highest overall tax burden since Clement Attlee was in power. And when it comes to business taxes, haven't we all forgotten they're going up 30% anyway. Yes, that's right. 30% corporation tax is going up from 19% to 25%. The last thing, surely, we want to do as we now move into a horrible age of stagflation is to put businesses off being here and investing. So that's my view. But you tell me what you think, please. Do you think that a windfall tax would end fuel poverty. Farage at gbnews.uk. You can send me your thoughts and your answers. Well, joining me on this is Tom Burke, chairman of E3G, and you've been government advisor on climate and Greenpeace and many, many other things over the years. So, Tom, Tell me straight, do you support a windfall tax? I absolutely do. And the thing to remember about it is these are unearned profits. This wasn't companies investing, putting hard work in, lots of skills, lots of risk taking in order to make these profits. Things happened in the world and they found themselves in a very good position and they've picked up the benefits of that. They will certainly feed into the bonuses of their leading executives. And that's come out of all those people who can't afford to pay for energy right now. It's come out of their pockets. That's where that profit's coming from. So it's a very good idea to put it back in the pockets of the people. In 2020, they lost money. I mean, you know, the oil prices collapsed in 2020. These firms all lost money. So, yeah, I get what you're saying. But actually, actually, there's been investment. There's been a lot of skill, a lot of risk in developing many of these offshore sites. So, you know, it swings and roundabouts, isn't it? You're absolutely right about that. And you know what about the oil companies? They already pay 30% corporation tax. And do you know what that means? It means that the taxman pays BP and Shell 
a refund every year because they offset against that their, their money they invest in cleaning up the mess they've made in the North Sea. So I'm going to find it very hard to feel sorry for the oil companies. Well, I was making a more generic point about business rate taxes going up 30% in this country, and that's what worries me. The mood music of all of this worries me. So you think it's a great idea, but what about my idea? What about saying to them, look, why not reinvest this in new offshore and onshore production? I'll tell you what, we live in a consumption-driven economy, and if you want to make this economy do really well, then put money back in people's pockets, and they'll spend it on the things they need, and that really will give the economy a boost. Whereas investing well. in energy developments Investing in the kind of energy developments oil companies do will take a long time before you see any benefit from it. What would be a really good idea would be to use the money uh, from a wind fall tax to actually really drive forward in the way the government promised to do but hasn't delivered on energy efficiency because that would help get people's bills down in the long run as well as you should. But if we aimed for energy independence, right, and let's face it, I know how you feel on this, but let's face it, we're going to need gas, some coal and oil for many, many years to come. If we, aimed, if we ask these people to reinvest those profits, aimed at energy independence, we'd create tens of thousands of well-paid jobs, there'd be more money for the, for the exchequer, and we'd end the risk after what we've seen in Russia of having to import things from other countries. I'm completely in favour of doing things that reduce our dependence on imported fuels. Absolutely right. We've got to stop importing them anyway, so the sooner we can go on with doing that, the better. The best way to do that would be to take that money and actually get somebody like National Grid to do what it's doing brilliantly in America right now, working with local government, local authorities to insulate houses street by street so that you end up really improving our independence because you take away the demand and you do something for well, people. People's bills. Well, well, right now, well, I yeah, think that's yeah, really no, good. No, no, look, I'm not arguing against efficiency, <laughs> but the fact is we import 50% of the gas that we use, and even better insulation isn't going to deal with a very large chunk of that problem. Well, and, and one other point, I'm, I'm going to raise this with you, Tom. You talk about putting money back in people's pockets, but the truth is millions of people have private pension provision, all right, a company schemes as well, or whatever else it may be. And really, this is actually an attack on people's pensions, well, isn't it? I'm, I'm one of them, so uh, if I was worried about this being an attack on well, people's pensions... Well, maybe you're pensions, very well off and you don't need to worry <laughs> I, about it. I wish. I'm not very well off. But I'm not worried about that because I know my pension fund is actually well managed and it has diverse sources. It's not dependent entirely on oil dividends uh, for its revenues. But if we were, it's required... But if we super tax oil and gas, right, as... This is the proposal that you're in favour of, or call it whatever word you want, windfall tax. Um, then who knows? I mean, are we, are we saying as a country that we'll bail out failing businesses, because we've seen that since 2008, and we'll tax to the blazes any success? Well, well, is, that, is that a good hang model? On, hang on, Nigel, you're overgeneralising. This is an idea to tax, a one-off tax, maybe for a year, maybe possibly for two, but not for longer. It's not a general tax forever and all the problems that all you're right. talking about. It's a one-off tax to get back the money that's being taken out of people's uh, pockets by uh, simply by events beyond anybody's control. I just think the what would be a much better idea with the old companies to give it back to the people directly. What about that might big, be even a Well, what way. about Big Pharma? Should we put a, Should there be a windfall tax on Big Pharma? I, 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 I mean, after the money they've made. I'm not 
trying to do tax policy. I'm an environmentalist. I'm just talking about what I think would be but good. But you see the danger of this. The danger of this is if you open the door to the concept of windfall taxes on the successful parts of the British economy, it's a very slippery slope. I think you're right about some of the dangers there, but there are other dangers which worry me more. And that's the loss of social cohesion because we're getting more and more divided internally. Wealthy people are getting wealthier and poorer people are getting poorer. And actually, that's a real threat to this country in the long run. And this is a measure that could help us deal with well, that. As we head towards 40% fuel poverty, and for those that don't know, fuel poverty is defined as more than 10% of your disposable income being spent on energy. The boss of E.ON thinks that could be 40% by the autumn of this year. So, look, you know, none of us are underestimating how serious this is. Uh, but I just, Tom, I just, final point on this. It's only going to raise a couple of billion. It won't make any difference, really, would it, well, anyway? Oh, well, say I, that I, I to mean, the people who are having to choose between eating and, and heating. But it's not it's going to make difference but to you them. and I both know. If we tax these companies, it goes into the general coffers and gets lost. Well, no, it's really simple. It's straightforward, and people will be quite right to mistrust government on this. But you do that by... Um, well, it happens. happens. It happens. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the, way you, the way you do that is you just make sure that money goes directly into universal credit, as incidentally, by the way, former Tory party leader was arguing for the other day. You put it into universal credit and uh, right away, and it goes right back to the people. So you can easily see whether they, however much they raise, they put that back in universal credit, which goes directly to the most disadvantaged well, people, those 40%. The estimate I got was all this would raise is a couple of billion, which sounds like a lot of money, but actually spread amongst the country it's not very much. I have a sense, I have a sense, Tom Burke, that uh, there is a, a tide of support for your argument <laughs> and that probably Boris will buckle and I thank you for coming on and engaging in this debate. My pleasure. Thank you. Now, why did we vote for Brexit? Why did we do it? What was the main driver? I'll tell you what it was. Without doubt, it was open borders. It was people seeing the population of Britain rising rapidly. Um, and of course, we go on about illegal immigration all the time. Today, we saw the first speedboat crossing the English Channel. Um, 250 in today, 250 odd in yesterday. But that is nothing. That is actually dwarfed by what is happening legally with immigration in this country. Now, the last figures we have year on year show that actually work visas issued were up to 240,000. Family reunions, 280,000. Student visas, 430,000. So we have the visibility of illegal immigration across the English Channel. And that worries us and it puts a big burden upon us but the level of legal immigration is huge. It looks like we will be heading for a record year of net migration into the United Kingdom. This is not what we voted for, either in the referendum or when we gave Boris Johnson a massive majority of 80. And we can talk about Northern Ireland, we can talk about fisheries and many other things, but this is the biggest Brexit betrayal. The fact is, immigration numbers are going to be even bigger than they were under Tony Blair. Now, in response to this, a group of Red Wall MPs, a couple of dozen Red Wall MPs, are saying that this undeniably undermines Brexit promises, manifesto promises, uh, and I have to say, uh, there are so many in Westminster whether it's in politics, whether it's in the media, uh, who would rather we never, ever debated this subject. Rather, it was just brushed 
under the carpet. But I wonder, is there any one of you watching this now that has not seen a fundamental change in our way of life as a result of a massive explosion of the population? Our population has risen by 10 million, and that's the official figure. I'm sure the reality is much higher. It's risen by 10 million since Tony Blair won that election 25 years ago. And whether it's getting GP appointments, whether it's how busy the roads are, whether it's getting our kids into local schools, I think we're all feeling the impact of a massively rising population. And right now, there is nothing to stop it whatsoever. In a moment, I'll be joined by the Member of Parliament for Horton Price and Howden, David Davis. He's written today in the Daily Telegraph that he thinks a windfall tax is profoundly unconservative. I'll ask him in a minute whether he can win that argument within the Conservative Party. So will a windfall tax end fuel poverty? That's the big question. And Tom Burke, who's with us a moment ago, thinks it could make a very big difference. What do you think? Well, some audience reaction. One viewer says, end energy standing charges, which are energy bills, even if you don't use any energy at all. Another says, there's already been a windfall bonanza from the super profits made by energy companies. Good point. The big question is what will HM Treasury do with all the extra corporation tax they have raked in? This is a point that seems to have been completely missed by everybody. Actually, government tax revenues are much better than they thought they were going to be. Kev says, any windfall tax is temporary and will end with greater poverty, less investment, less employment, etc. Jason says, no, the government will lie in their own pockets. Oh, come on. And the public will get nothing. <laughs> well, I do understand that confidence in politicians is low. Um, David Davis, uh, veteran MP from Holder Price and Howden, can confirm that, I'm sure. Yeah, I thought you wrote that last one yourself. <laughs> <laughs> well, and this is the great thing, we get a variety of views from yeah. the public and we, yeah. we, we enjoy having them with us. We were up in your part of the world a couple of weeks ago, we were in Hull doing a, oh, live, oh, right. doing a live show from Hull. Yeah. And uh, it was interesting, people were very, very concerned, or f fearful about the cost of living, fearful well, well, they're right to be. about what their energy yeah. bills are going to be. I mean, I grew up in a household where what you got to eat on Thursday night was down to how well balanced your, your budget had been the week before, you know, it was, uh, that was when we had weekly pay packets. Yeah. And people are still in that category, you know, people still do have to worry about heating and eating at the same time. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and, it's, and, it's, and it's big, I mean, that's the other thing, it's big. I mean, you asked me to talk about, uh, amongst other things, about, about windfall tax. You know, if you raise a windfall tax, it's one or two billion. Here we're, yeah. we're, here we're talking about 12 to 20 billion, the sort of money you need to fix this. You know? And I'm not just saying talk, fixing it for the poor, which of course you've got to do, you've got to fix it for the rest of society. But here's the point, David. The yeah. windfall tax, pushed hard by Labour, supported by the SNP, Lib Dems, Uncle Tom Cobbley and all. Yeah. And actually, the snapshot view of the public is, yeah, what a great idea. Yeah. So, what, so why are the public wrong? Well, number one, the, the, the big issue for the coming year is going to be growth which is down to investment, business investment and so on. If 
government starts saying, oh, well, I'll take a tax here and a tax there. I won't give you a windfall support when you lose 20 billion, but I'll take money off you when you when you make it. You're going to start creating considerable uncertainty amongst the international business community. We need their money. We need them to come here. We need them to invest here. Post-Brexit, that's what the strategy's got to be. Well, we all, well, we all thought it was. Yeah, well, but, it isn't uh, at the moment. And, and, no. you know, and, and, and so that's that's point number one. Point number two is, as you as you alluded to earlier, the the Treasury, when it was making its plans for putting NICs up, for putting national insurance yeah, yeah. up and uh, increasing corporation tax and all the other things to do, and by the way, not giving us our tax allowance increases that we should have had. Dragging all, more and more people into top rate tax. Pretty much doubling by the end of the Parliament the number of people in top rate tax. You know, the people who don't think they're rich at all. Uh, all of that means this year we got a record tax take. A record, not just a high, a higher than we thought, but a record. It was 95 billion more than we thought. So, you know, and, you're, and we're having a political argument about 2 billion, which might do 100 times that amount of damage in terms of reducing investment coming. But your coming. real criticism, David, is that it's a profoundly unconservative thing to do. Yeah. Now, you joined Parliament yeah. when Margaret Thatcher was still the leader, yeah. but she did introduce a windfall tax on banks, didn't yeah, well, she? Even Margaret made, made mistakes. Look, All right, fair the, enough. The, the, <laughs> yeah, I knew her very fair well. Enough. There were times I fell out with her myself. But the, but, the, but the simple, if you want a sort of maxim for Conservatives, it's when it's not necessary to increase taxes, it's necessary not to increase taxes. I mean, mm. you know, I mean we don't need to. But is this a Conservative party in anything mm. but name? Well, the trouble is, Nigel, it's been driven off all... I mean, bear in mind, in our manifesto, we promised not to increase a whole range of taxes, which we have now increased, as it turns out unnecessarily. We, you know, it was a Conservative manifesto, it just hasn't been a Conservative delivery. You know, and there's, there's a lot of my party, you'll know a lot of them, you know, the, the red wall seats and so on, who want to see us get back to proper Conservative principles. Because, you know, they, th they take the view that you know, the red wall... The people who vote in red wall seats are no different the people vote elsewhere. You know, they want an efficient government, they want a straightforward government, they want a low-tax government. Law and order, border They want controls, law and order, they want proper yeah, delivery, yeah, they want border, well, you know, all of those no, things. I mean, the Partygate thing, David, the Partygate thing kind of went on and on and yeah. on. Yeah. But let's just have a quick look at this clip. This was the 8th of December last year in the House of Commons. Just watch this exchange. Pharmacists, as he, as he rightly says, up and down the country, uh, and we have 1,500 community pharmacies uh, vaccine, vaccinating uh, people near where they where they live. Uh, I, I know that uh, the NHS uh, are considering the, the need to support more pop-up uh, clinics where there's a need. I'm happy to arrange a meeting uh, with him and the vaccines uh, minister to discuss this further. Catherine West. Yeah. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Will the Prime Minister tell the House? whether there was a party in Downing Street on the 13th of November. Prime Minister. Mr Speaker, no, but I'm sure that in, in whatever happened, uh, the guidance was followed and the rules were followed at all times. Dr Luke Evans. Right, well, that was the, that was the exchange of the House of Commons on that day. ITV in the last 90 minutes. Mm have obtained a picture from the 13th of November. And here is the picture. And so <laughs> we can see there's a... Obviously, the other faces have been blocked out. There's yeah. Boris Johnson giving a speech. Yeah. 
there's the bottle of gin's half empty, there's a bottle of red, a bottle of... I mean, it's a full-on booze up. Has he misled the house? I'll, 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 get, I'll give away to your better eyesight than mine. <laughs> <laughs> well, look at it. You know, there's litter with bottles. Right. Now, you know, maybe he's going to argue it was a work bubble or whatever. Has he misled the house? Well, that's, that's going to be the decision. It's going to fall to the Privileges Committee. I think one of the things... You know, I've been very, very economical about my, my interventions on this. I've, you know, and part of the reason is, if you keep jabbering on about something all the time, no, people stop paying attention. They get bored. Yeah. Yeah. They get bored with you doing it. And there are other big issues to talk about. But the, the resolution of this issue... I think is going to come when the Privileges Committee meets and makes a decision. And its decision is very straightforward. It will be, did the Prime Minister deliberately mislead the House? And they'll trawl over this, they'll trawl over all the other photographs and assertions and what Sue Gray said. And that's, that's the key point. And, it, and if, it, if they say, if it turns out they say, yes, he, he deliberately misled the House, then that's, that's a fatal attack, you know. Um, so we have to wait and see what they say. A lot, of, a lot of MPs, I mean, we thought we were getting very, very close to the 54 letters. Yeah. You know, you said what you said in the House of Commons yeah. about his leadership. Um, a lot of those MPs that had withdrawn support from Johnson reintroduced that support yeah. recently. Where do you stand Well, you know, you know what happened on the day... Uh, people have forgotten what happened on the day I made my intervention. The other thing that happened that day was a member of the Conservative Party crossed the floor. From Bury, yeah. And the effect of that was to make everybody recoil. You know, is this... Are we being disloyal? Not just to the Prime Minister, but yeah. to the party at large and, indeed, to our own voters. All right, uh, and uh, and so that's what happened. That's what the one I think that was of all the things that were talked about. That was the biggest thing. Christian really. Wakeford, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Now I think that a, a load of people now. I mean. MPs like somebody else to do the dirty work for yeah. them. You know? <laughs> no, I clear. get all that, but, what, but what's but, your position? But, uh, I th well, I think that my position is the same as many others that will make a clear decision when we get that uh, that uh, that committee decision because you know it's unavoidable. You know, it's a yes no. Everything else, oh, was it really a party? Yeah. Was it a work event? But did he mislead? Did he the house? know? Yeah. Did it was it was he was yeah. he misguided in the advice he got? Yeah. All those things. It's the misleading of the house. Was the well, I do. We don't have to wait as long as we had to wait for the Grey Report and the Metropolitan well, Police. Well, I, I hope it happens I, quickly. I think, I think, well, you see, you've got a Grey Report coming this week, we're told. Yep. Um, that will be difficult, but I don't think it'll be fatal. I'd be no. surprised if it was. But I think the, that then creates the issue for the, for the committee. And I'm assuming that they're going to do it before the summer. I'm yep. assuming, but, you know, I don't know. I mean, I, I have no privileged information to that. David I, Davis. I'm glad to say I'm not a member of that committee. We will find out very soon. <laughs> and thank you very much indeed. For joining us here on GB News. Now, the concept of digital health is one that I find a little bit difficult to get my head around. But there are some reports out overnight suggesting that it might be a really, really good idea to uh, get cancer doctors working from home. But before we get to that and sticking on the health issue, monkeypox, it's everywhere. Now, at the moment in this country, fewer than one in a million people have it. But it is commanding quite significant amounts of new space. Indeed, countries like Belgium are already introducing quarantine periods. And I even heard somebody on the BBC this morning talking about vaccinations. Oh, no. Here we go again. I began to think to myself, well, who better could I possibly speak to? 
than Dr. Robert Malone, virologist, a man who worked on the development of mRNA vaccines. He's been doing this for decades. Uh, Robert, thank you for joining us from Heathrow Airport. Very good of you. Um, how scared should we be of monkeypox? I know this is a brief hit. The answer is not very. The mortality rate is very low. The infectivity is very low. The reproductive coefficient is one or less for those that are uh, wonky epidemiologists working at Imperial College uh, that have a tendency to overestimate things. And uh, it can be transmitted from human to human by contact and respiratory droplets, but that's rare. This is the, what's circulating right now appears to be the West African strain, which is less problematic than the Congo strain. In general, I think we have a whole lot of fear being spun up. And among the other many other vaccines that I've worked on was the uh, vaccine for smallpox, which is the one that they would deploy here. And that is not a benign product. It is associated with, wait for it, myocarditis. Mm. Yeah, well, uh, yes, and I know you said much about that uh, with the vaccine. And by the way, Robert, we are heading perhaps towards, for the elderly, uh, their fifth jab um, in the autumn of this year. So basically what you're saying is on monkeypox, that this is a media getting overexcited. Do we see any signs as yet of the World Health Organization or governments around the world uh, beginning to prepare for the next pandemic? Well, uh, of course, there was strangely exactly one year ago a pandemic preparedness exercise specifically on monkeypox. I'm sure that was a coincidence. Um, we do see the World Health Organization spinning up. Yeah, you picked up the sarcasm. Um, you saw the World Health Organization spinning up announcements recently. It's been widespread in the media. And what I found fascinating is multiple media sources substituting images of smallpox or of uh, shingles for monkeypox. I noticed in your upcoming program, you actually have a, with GB News in your follow-on, you actually have an accurate image of what monkeypox looks like. It's important to remember also that monkeypox does not come necessarily from monkeys. There's a variety of animals. And we had a monkeypox outbreak in the United States due to African imported uh, pouched rats and other uh, rodents that got into the prairie dog population in the United States. I guess it is a problem if you're a prairie dog or if you like to catch prairie dogs, <laughs> but we didn't have any major problem with that outbreak in the United States in 03. Okay, and, and Robert, finally, um, is coronavirus now a thing of the past or does it come back every year like winter flu? Um, we already have multiple coronaviruses that come back all the time, like winter flu. Those are the beta coronaviruses. This is now going to be endemic. Uh, let's hope that Gert von den Bosch, uh is not right. He is warning about the potential of it becoming more pathogenic. But right now, I, I think that it looks like we're out of the woods on this one for the most part. Uh, and what what is concerning is the... Uh, problems in the vaccinated, those the data do seem to suggest that there is some problem with the multiple jabbed being more susceptible to infection, disease and death, I'm sorry to say. 
That is uh, a sobering thought. Robert Malone, thank you so much for making the effort at Heathrow Airport to come on and talk to us and uh, safe flight back to America. Thank you. My, my pleasure. Well, Robert Malone there, who has been... Robert's been very sceptical about the jab from day one, yet he's one of the pioneers of mRNA vaccines, I'm sure. There are many others who will say, of course, the more jabs you have, the safer you are. And that's why for many, a fifth jab is lined up later this year. Sticking with health, I'm going to be joined by Mark Lawler, Professor of Digital Health at Queen's University, Belfast, and part of the European Cancer Organization as a board member. Mark, good evening. Hi, Nigel. Good to see you again. Good to see you. Just briefly, Mark, explain to us uh, the concept of digital health, because it sounds a bit odd. Yeah, no, absolutely. Essentially, what we're looking at is how do you use data and data intelligence to understand more about a disease such as cancer, but also to use it to help patients in relation to how we look at, for example, pathology images, scanning images, etc., and how we can use that information, bring it all together and use it to help in cancer, for example, in relation to earlier diagnosis. Because if we diagnose cancer at an earlier stage, it's much more easy to treat. Um, or if we want to look at ways in which we can use this to develop algorithms that will uh, allow us to develop new treatments for cancer. And, you know, there's a proposal overnight that more cancer doctors, more cancer consultants should work from home. And somehow we're going to get better diagnoses that way. That seems very odd to me. Do you support this idea? Uh, essentially, what we're looking at is how do we look at ways in which we can maximise the information that we gather on cancer patients and how can we do that in the most efficient way? And obviously, we've got used now to looking at a hybrid approach in terms of consulting, teleconsultations, for example, for patients, but it still has to be very much that hybrid approach. And certainly, there are certain things we can do that we can look at, look at images, for example, while making sure, obviously, those images are completely protected and anonymized in relation to um, data safety, for example, to avoid any data breaches. But certainly Mike Richards has suggested this, and certainly there is merit in looking at ways in which we can do this. I think one of the big challenges, uh, Nigel, and you've talked about this yourself on previous programs, is you know, we really need to look at ways in which we can reverse the, ba uh, the backlog that's accumulated because of COVID. And, you know, for example, work that we did in Europe showed that there's probably one million people walking around with a cancer diagnosis that they don't know they have. So we're in a race against time to identify those people so that we can then diagnose them properly and give them the appropriate treatment. So I think we do need to think a little bit outside the box. I know it sounds a little bit odd at first, but it's looking at different ways in which we can maximize the capacity of the health service so that we do address the backlog, obviously 1.6 million million backlog. We need to look at innovative ways to do that. Yeah. Well, Mark Lawler, I tell you what, this is a subject close to every family's heart in this country. Thank you for coming on. And we're going to come back and keep tabs with you on what's happening in UK cancer care. Thank you very much indeed. Now, my what the Farage moment. Joe Biden, sleepy Joe, but known by many of his opponents as Beijing Biden. Yes, that's how friendly they think Joe Biden is with communist China. Indeed, his son Hunter has had some business dealings in China, amongst other countries, too. But overnight in Japan, Joe Biden, when the subject of Taiwan came up, surprised me when he said this. He didn't want to get involved in the Ukraine conflict militarily for obvious reasons. 
Are you willing to get involved militarily to defend Taiwan if it comes to that? Yes. You are? That's the commitment we made. That's the commitment we made. We are not — look, here's the situation. We agree with a one-China policy. We signed on to it, and all the attendant agreements made from there. But the idea that — that it can be taken by force is taken by force is just not is just not appropriate It'll dislocate the entire region well there you are there was biden sounding tough on china let's hope that he means it and more importantly let's hope that china believes that he means it in a moment it's going to be time for talking pints i'll be joined by ex-Met Detective Superintendent Shabnan Chowdhury. And we're going to talk particularly about multiculturalism in London. Are we being divided up further? Should there be a different policy, perhaps, of bringing us all together? All of that in just a moment. It's that time of the day. Yes, it's time for Talking Pints. I'm joined by Shabnam Chowdhury, ex-Met Superintendent, very nice to meet you. Likewise. Thank you Thank very you. much Cheers. indeed. Mm. Now, your story, your career is not just interesting, but it's very relevant to London today. I think, in fact, to all of Britain's big cities today. So you come here, you're a young kid, 18 months old, family come from Pakistan. Um, and it all must have been quite a shock, I guess, for your parents. Completely different country. <clears throat> what I was fascinated about reading about you is, you know, you had pretty strict, pretty strict parents in terms of what you were or were not allowed to do. And you're living in East London. And as I, as I read it, you know, the family took a bit of abuse. Yeah. You know, um, because we know these things happened and you weren't always welcome in those old existing communities. And yet your father's attitude towards all of this seemed to be remarkable. Yeah. In that he was saying to you, well, look, we shouldn't retaliate. We mustn't respond. You know, we've come to a different country. We've got to learn their ways. So he was kind of, in a sense, wanting you to integrate. He wanted us to integrate. He was really strict, but what he didn't want was us to retaliate to any form of abuse. He felt, and um, we as young children felt, that we had come from a different country. We were living here in the UK. I've been British, you know, through and through, despite the fact that I was born in Karachi, Pakistan. But um, my parents wanted us to respect the people of London, yeah. pretty much. That was it. And, and we didn't retaliate, you know. We, we retaliated in a more positive way by being more embracing with the people uh, that lived around us. And you obviously developed a talent for spotting criminals and crime. <laughs> Get, picking up on a shoplifters, I understand, was how your policing career really began. It did, and it actually, well, there was a £50 reward for all of it, Nigel, so what, there was what, always... What for catching a shoplifter? Not the shoplifters, the credit card fraudsters, ah. but sh shoplifters, credit card fraudsters, you used to have the old Access and American Express cards and so on. and when they'd come in the shop before they'd even purchased anything and they'd ask if we sell certain items or, or whatever, gut feeling. And then we used to get a lot of police officers come into the shop and so we'd offer them 10% discount and they keep saying to me, God, you're really streetwise, you're really, yeah. you're really bright um, and you should think about joining the police. So I started to look into policing 
uh, trying to juggle that with family, community, being brought up in a really strict environment, wanting to be westernised, but Asian, wearing salwar kameez at home, going out in what my father didn't accept, jeans for starters. You I mean, know, even that was too much for jeans, him, Jeans, nothing that was, you know, look at me now, <laughs> but I mean, tight-fitting jeans was a no-no. So when you said you were going to join the police, how did the family take it? Um, well, my father actually applied to become a cop in Karachi, but he was too skinny. Uh, they didn't want me to be police officer. You know, I was young, 18 years of age by that time. Um, they had other plans. They wanted me to get married. Um, they had uh, suitors come into the house, uh, you, you know, all different shapes and sizes. And let me tell you, they were all different shapes and sizes. And, and this, is, this is effectively an arranged marriage, is it? It was effectively an arranged marriage. It was never forced. There's a huge difference between the two. Yes. Um, but it was effectively an arranged marriage. And I rebelled against that. You know, I'm one of five girls. And so my parents had a big headache with five daughters on their hands and four sons, uh, mashallah, as they say. But, but, ba but basically, um, you know, to have five daughters, it would have been quicker to have us married off because that was the culture and that was a tradition. Mm. But it wasn't a tradition that I was willing to buy into. And you've kind of broken completely away from all of that because, I mean, you know, as a police officer, you know, one of your roles was actually dealing with forced marriages, not a rape. As you say, there's a big difference. Yeah. So actually, in a sense, you were back policing some of the habits, customs, and cultures uh, that, in, in many ways, your family had come from. Was that was that difficult to to, to reconcile for you or not? No, I, I'm. You know, I know I was unique, particularly back then, because there were far fewer. Uh, female Asian women within policing. Yeah. Uh, I was, you know, ranked as I went higher into policing. And you policing. stood out, I guess. I'm. You stood out, I guess. I stood out in a good way. Uh, in a good way. In sometimes not such a good way. Even from my own community, um, but from from other communities, I got consistently. You know, people didn't believe I was a police officer. They thought I was um, uh, the the girl from the bill. So I'd get people stop asking for my autograph, um, and uh, of course I said no, funny. I wasn't. But there were occasions when I did actually give an autograph. I just hope I never meet those people again. So um, yeah, um, but it was. It was actually unique, but actually I think what stood out for me was it was welcomed by my colleagues who didn't understand culture, who didn't understand uh, diversity, who didn't understand difference. And that's what made me different in that I was more culturally competent than many of them, and they appreciated that. Plus I had languages. Yeah, and of course I'm sure there were some police officers didn't like you being there, but, but generally, generally, you know, you're sort of kind of a little bit of a trailblazer, I guess, in those days doing this. And, and, and yet what worries me is this, <coughs> multiculturalism. You know, it's a word that was pushed during the Blair years all the time. We must all celebrate multiculturalism. And I've got a real problem with that, because if we celebrate multiculturalism, we celebrate each individual culture. Where's our sense then of togetherness? Where's our sense of belonging? Of course, we all come from different cultures and different backgrounds. Um, what should we be trying to do with this? Should we be trying to treat everybody literally equally and be colourblind about who they are? Or, or is there a danger, Shabnam, that we divide people up well, and separate them even yeah, more? I think it would be nice if we could be colourblind, but that's not going to happen. But I also think that it is important to celebrate difference and diversity. Wouldn't you want to be rich in culture and diversity? To me, it's like 
the united colours of Benetton. I'd love to know more about different cultures, different backgrounds, um, people that are different in all sorts of ways, because I think that makes for a better society. You are not going to suddenly have everybody treated equally, because all communities, all societies, all different backgrounds and cultures are different. But should there be a feeling of togetherness is really my question. There should be a feeling of togetherness. There has to be a feeling of togetherness because when you have a feeling of togetherness you have less fighting, less aggressiveness, less, you know, um, uh, you know people being more accepting of people's differences. Um, but will you get complete togetherness? I not in my lifetime, I don't think. I certainly haven't had it since I was a very young girl. So I worry. I, I just worry we're being driven apart. I mean, take the Black Lives Matter protest. You know, within 48 hours of George Floyd, and you know, it was decided it was a murder that took place. Within 48 hours, we've got huge protests in London. We've got police officers taking the knee, and I'm trying to warn everybody. This organisation wasn't about racial equality or justice. This organisation actually wanted to divide us all up even further. I mean, haven't the Met lost their way on all of this? Well, let's just be clear on one thing. When you said that um, it was decided that it was a murder, it was a murder. Yeah, no, it no. was a convicted yeah, murderer. Yeah. Um, but the fact is, I think the police... It's not a question of whether policing has lost its way. I think policing has got a huge amount to learn in terms of diversity, understanding. Does that mean taking money? an individual choice. No, surely it's not. I mean, no. surely police officers shouldn't make political statements. Well, to, to a certain degree, I, I agree with you in that we, we're not there to make... We, we sign mm. an oath to say that we're not going to discuss or, you know, be affiliated to any particular party. But there are obviously officers there that did feel strongly, strongly about it. They shouldn't be forced to do anything that they don't want to do in respect of that. They chose to take the knee, and I personally respect to them for doing it because I think that takes a huge amount of courage to be in an environment like that and to say, do you know what, I don't agree with what's going on and therefore I am going to take the knee. And so they took the knee. That's an individual choice. It wasn't, um, you know, a, a mandatory, you will not take the knee. No. But, but decisions from different parts of policing at different levels came back to say... I worry about it. I, I, I think it's you too... You worry too much, Nigel. Well, you, you've got to change things. You've got to try to analyse what's going right and what's going wrong, you know. Relationships in London between the Met and the ethnic minorities, or sections of the ethnic minorities, they seem to be pretty bad, are they? They are terrible. They are. They haven't got better over the years. They've got worse. Um, there's a huge disparity between police and the black community in particular. Mm. Um, understandably which so. Is, which has been there for decades. Yeah, which has been there for decades. But the fact is, you know, when young black people are stopped and searched, mm. um, you know, disproportionately, when there is use of force in terms of use of handcuffs, when there is um, evidence to support the fact that young black people are more likely to be tasered, um, more likely to be subjected to different treatment by police officers as opposed to white members of the community, it's going to create mistrust. And it has created mistrust. But what do the police do? Because I mean, if you look at the, if you look at the knife crime, if you look at the deaths in London, uh, caused by knives, far too many deaths caused by knives. A lot of that's black on black. So what are the police supposed to do? Surely stop and search well, in areas where, where, where people are carrying knives. Surely that makes sense. I, I, listen, we cannot 
dispute the fact that young black men are more likely to be victims and perpetrators in some parts of London. Mm. However, that does not mean to say that because a particular area there is um, significant uh, knife crime or violence or drugs or gangs or whatever, that you blanket stop and search every young black male that you pass because you have this perception or a bias that that individual is being uh, is involved in crime. It's rather like the Sus laws 40 years ago in the Brixton riots then. Yeah, that, that's what you're saying really, isn't it? Well, yeah. You can, you, you've got to have your grounds, you've got to be mm. uh, proportionate in your stop and such. And most important, Nigel, what I see, what I'd like to see more of, is dignity and respect when you are actually dealing with you. People don't mind being stopped and searched, but when you're being stopped and searched four times in a month, and with the same um, you know, grounds for the stop, okay. I can smell cannabis, you can't use that grounds anymore, I can just smell cannabis. But the fact is, there needs to be better policing of communities. And I, I will say this, in the last, certainly in the last couple of months even, I think Met Police in particular are less defensive than what they have been in the past. And I think that that will open doors and start bridging gaps. Okay, interesting. Well, you've served a long career in the police. What next for Shabnam Chowdhury? What next? What's your next big battle? Do you know what? I was tired of battling. <laughs> That's part of the reason that like, I left policing. I got tired of, I loved policing, don't get me wrong. It is one of the best careers ever. You know, I am proud as a British Muslim woman to have served within policing. But just over 30 years, I just felt it's time to go. Enough was enough. Enough was enough. Enough was enough. Well, well done for what you've done. And thank you for Cheers. joining me here thank you on Talking Bites. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, we've got a couple of minutes left on the programme, which means Barrage the Farage. Here are today's questions. One viewer asks, are our police too soft nowadays? Are our police too soft, Shabna? I don't think police are too soft. I think if you talk about, you know, protest, extinction, rebellion, the, um, you know, people say in the members of the public, and I'm not a public order expert, that, you know, the police need to go in and remove these people. Yeah. When people are gluing themselves to the floor, there's other tactics and options and op uh, processes that need to be utilised in order to effectively remove those people. You have got to take into account that you're not just looking at public safety, but you have still got to manage the safety of those particular individuals. Mm, I'm a bit more sceptical than you. <laughs> I, I, Funny, I thought you were going to I say shift that. I them on pretty sharpish. I really, well, I ideally, I'd, I'd like, like to. Protest, but... Right to protest. I mean, I've, I've been out on protest. Right to protest, fine, but, but you know. Um, Mary asks, is Macron a modern-day Blair, or is he even worse? Oh, I think he's probably even worse. Um, yeah, and I think, actually, you know, the Iraq war, of course, will live with Blair until the day he dies, um, as will as we'll opening up the doors, all sorts of things. But Macron, Macron's a shocker. Bobby asks, would you scrap the protocol completely or just amend it? Bobby, you can try and amend it. There's no negotiation with the European Union. They're completely impossible. Just get rid of the blooming thing. It's not working. We have part of our country cut off with a border in the Irish Sea. Well, that's it from me today. I hope you enjoyed the rather action-packed hour. <laughs>